Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and happy holidays, whatever it is you celebrate this time of year. This is our last episode before Christmas is officially upon us, and I don't know about you, but this year I feel like it crept up on me faster than some cosmic horror from the depths of a Stygian abyss. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If there's one time of year that gives Halloween a run for its money in the terrifying tales department, it's Christmas. There are no lack of malevolent Christmas creatures looking to whip kids into good behavior, some of which we explored around this time last year. But there are a lot of creepy things about Christmas that we're so used to we don't even bother to question them. How about the fat man who watches you while you sleep? and who silently slips down your chimney to eat your snacks. Okay, fine, so he leaves a few gifts behind, better than most of the other mythical figures who will either steal from, beat, or murder and eat you, I suppose. But can someone please explain to me this whole elf-on-the-shelf business? 
Because a doll that switches places and positions on its own when you're not looking? And that reports back to old peeping Saint Nick? Well, I can't say I'm all that comfortable with the idea of that either. Even if it does keep the rugrats in line. Even many of the songs we sing have a dark side to them. The family matriarch murdered by a herd of caribou? a mother's adulterous tryst under the glow of the Christmas tree, and I won't even open the can of worms of that whole dubious consent debate. Also, remember good King Wenceslas, the kind old monarch who helped a poor man on a cold winter's night? Well, he was a real person, and by all accounts, a pretty solid guy even if he was a duke and not actually a king. Didn't prevent him from being murdered and dismembered by his own brother, though. Nobody sings about that part of his story, though, do they? One of my favorite traditions, though, that I vote we make a pact, you and I, to resurrect, is the telling of Christmas ghost stories. It's a tradition that goes back to the days when long winter nights meant huddling up with family and friends by the fire and whiling away the hours just trying to keep warm, trying to survive. But with the comforts of light and warmth right at our fingertips, the need for a Christmas chill seems to have evaporated too. For the average person, Dickens probably has the corner on the festive ghost story market. But there are a surprising amount of classic tales of holiday horror centered on this time of year. Dickens had other tales as well, and M. R. James actually got his start reading ghost stories to his friends and family around the Christmas bonfire. There are some modern gems too, and if you've got some time over the holidays, I think it would be worth your time to search some out. Maybe start a new tradition of your own. In fact, why don't we give you a head start? We've got a pair of tails for you. So grab a mug of cocoa, dim the lights, and huddle up close to the fire while we spin you a haunted holiday tale or two. Our first story for the evening is a holiday horror classic from E.F. Benson. Edward Frederick Benson was born in 1867 to a distinguished English family. He was an amazingly prolific writer of fiction, reminiscences, and biographies, of which the best remembered are his arc satirical novels and his urbane autobiographical studies of Edwardian and Georgian society. Children of the Night, join me for E. F. Benson's between the Lights, first published in The Room in the Tower and Other Stories.
day had been one unceasing fall of snow from sunrise until the gradual withdrawal of the vague white light outside indicated that the sun had set again. But as usual, at this hospitable and delightful house of Edward Chandler, where I often spent Christmas, and was spending it now, there had been no lack of entertainment. And the hours had passed with a rapidity that had surprised us. A short billiard tournament had filled up the time between breakfast and lunch, with badminton and the morning papers for those who were temporarily not engaged, while afterwards the interval till tea-time had been occupied by the majority of the party in a huge game of hide-and-seek all over the house, barring, of course, the billiard-room, which was sanctuary for any who desired peace. But few had done that. The enchantment of Christmas, I must suppose, had, like some spell, made children of us again. And it was with palsied terror and trembling misgivings that we had tiptoed up and down the dim passages from any corner of which some wild screaming form might dart out on us. Then, wearied with exercise and emotion, we had assembled again for tea in the hall, a room of shadows and panels on which the light from the wide open fireplace, where there burned a divine mixture of peat and logs, flickered and grew bright again on the walls. Then, as was proper, ghost stories, for the narration of which the electric light was put out, so that the listeners might conjecture anything they pleased to be lurking in the corners, succeeded, and we vied with each other in blood, bones, skeletons, armor, and shrieks. I had just given my contribution and was reflecting with some complacency that probably the worst was now known, when Edward, who had not yet administered to the horror of his guest, spoke. He was sitting opposite me in the full blaze of the fire, looking, after the illness he had gone through during the autumn, still rather pale and delicate. All the same, he had been among the boldest and best in the exploration of dark places that afternoon and the look on his face now rather startled me. No, I don't mind that sort of thing, he said. The paraphernalia of ghosts has become somehow hackneyed, and when I hear of screams and skeletons I feel I am on familiar ground, and can at least hide my head under the bedclothes. Ah, but the bedclothes were twitched away by my skeleton, said I, in self-defense. I know. But I don't even mind that. Why, there are seven, eight skeletons in this room right now, covered with blood and skin and other horrors. No, the nightmares of one's childhood were the really frightening things, because they were vague. There was the true atmosphere of horror about them, because one didn't know what one feared. Now, if one could recapture that. Mrs. Chandler got quickly out of her seat. Oh, Edward, she said, surely you don't wish to recapture it again. I shouldn't have thought once was enough. This was enchanting. A chorus of invitation asked him to proceed, the real, true ghost story firsthand, which was what it seemed to be indicated, was too precious a thing to lose. Edward laughed. No, dear, I don't want to recapture it all again, he said to his wife. Then to us. But really, the well, 
The nightmare, perhaps, to which I was referring, is one of the vaguest and most unsatisfactory kind. It has no apparatus about it at all. You will probably say that it was nothing, and wonder why I was frightened. But I was. It frightened the wits out of me. And I only just saw something, without being able to swear what it was, and heard something which might have been a falling stone. Anyhow, tell us about the falling stone, said I. There was a stir of movement about the circle round the fire, and the movement was not of purely physical order. It was as if, this is only what I personally felt, it was as if the childish gaiety of the hours we had passed that day was suddenly withdrawn. We had jested on certain subjects, we had played hide-and-seek with all the power of earnestness that was in us. But now, so it seemed to me, there was going to be real hide-and-seek. Real terrors were going to lurk in dark corners or if not real terrors, terrors so convincing as to assume the garb of reality which were going to pounce on us. And Mrs. Chandler's exclamation as she sat down again, Oh, Edward, won't it excite you? tended, in any case, to excite us. The room still remained in dubious darkness except for the sudden light disclosed on the walls by the leaping flame of the hearth and there was wide field for conjecture as to what might lurk in the dim corners. Edward, however, had been sitting in bright light before, was banished by the extinction of some flaming log into the shadows. A voice alone spoke to us as he sat back in his low chair, a voice rather slow but very distinct. Last year, he said, on the 24th of December, we were down here as usual, Amy and I, for Christmas. Several of you who are here now were here then, three or four of you at least. I was one of these, but like the others, kept silence. For the identification, so it seemed to me, was not asked for. And he went on again without a pause. Those of you who were here then, he said, and are here now, will remember how very warm this day was last year. You'll remember, too, that we played croquet in the day on the lawn. It was perhaps a little cold for croquet, and we had played it, rather, in order to be able to say, with sound evidence back to the statement, that we had done so. Then he turned and addressed the whole little circle. We played ties of half-games, he said just as we have played billiards today, and it was certainly as warm on the lawn then as it was in the billiard room this morning directly after breakfast, while today I should not wonder if there was three feet of snow outside, more, probably. Listen. We heard a soft scurry of the falling flakes against the panes, like the soft tread of many little people who stepped lightly, but with the persistence of multitudes who were flocking to some rendezvous, Hundreds of little feet seemed to be gathering outside. Only the glass kept them out. And of the eight skeletons present, four or five, anyhow, turned and looked at the window. These were small paned with leaded bars. On leaded bars, little heaps of snow had accumulated, but there was nothing else to be seen. Yes, 
Last Christmas Eve was very warm and sunny, went on Edward. We had had no frost that autumn, and a temerious dahlia was still in flower. I've always thought that it must have been mad. He paused for a moment. And I wonder if I, too, were not mad, he added. No one interrupted him. There was something arresting, I must suppose, in what he was saying. It chimed in, anyhow, with the hide-and-seek, with the suggestions of the lonely snow. Mrs. Chandler had sat down again, but I heard her stir in her chair. But never was there a gay party so reduced as we had been in the last five minutes. Instead of laughing at ourselves for playing silly games, we were all taking a serious game seriously. Anyhow, I was sitting out, he said to me, while you and my wife played your half-game of croquet. Then it struck me that it was not so warm as I had supposed, because quite suddenly I shivered, and shivering I looked up. But I did not see you and her playing croquet at all. I saw something which had no relation to you and her. At least I hoped not. Now the angler lands his fish, the stalker kills his stag, and the speaker holds his audience. And as the fish is gaffed and the stag is shot, so were we held. There was no getting away till he had finished with us. You all know the croquet lawn, he said, and how it is bound all round by a flower border with a brick wall behind it, through which, you'll remember, there is only one gate. Well, I looked up and saw that the lawn, I could for one moment see it was still a lawn, was shrinking, and the walls closing in upon it. As they closed in too, they grew higher, and simultaneously the light began to fade and be sucked from the sky, till it grew quite dark overhead, and only a glimmer of light came in through the gate. There was, as I told you, a dahlia in flower that day, and as this dreadful darkness and bewilderment came over me, I remember that my eyes sought it in a kind of despair, holding on, as it were, to any familiar object. But it was no longer a dahlia, and for the red of its petals I saw only the red of some feeble firelight. And at that moment the hallucination was complete, I was no longer sitting on the lawn watching croquet, but I was in a low-roofed room, something like a cattle shed but round. Close above my head, though I was sitting down, ran rafters from wall to wall. It was nearly dark, but a little light came in from the door opposite to me, which seemed to lead into a passage that communicated with the exterior of the place. Little, however, of the wholesome air came into this dreadful den. The atmosphere was oppressive and foul beyond all telling. It was as if for years it had been the place of some human menagerie, and for those years had been uncleaned and unsweetened by the winds of heaven. Yet that oppressiveness was nothing to the awful horror of the place from the view of the spirit. Some dreadful atmosphere of crime and abomination dwelt heavily in it. Its denizens, whoever they were, were scarce human, so it seemed to me, and though men and women were akin more to the beasts of the field. And in addition 
there was present to me some sense of the weight of years. I had been taken and thrust down into some epoch of dim antiquity. He paused for a moment, and the fire on the hearth leaped up for a second and then died down again. But in that gleam I saw that all faces were turned to Edward, and that all wore the same look of dreadful expectancy. Certainly I felt it myself, and waited in a sort of shrinking horror for what was coming. As I told you, he continued, where there had been that unseasonable dahlia, there now burned a dim firelight, and my eyes were drawn there. Shapes were gathered round it. What they were, I could not at first see. Then, perhaps, my eyes got more accustomed to the dusk, or the fire burned better, for I perceived that they were of human form, but very small, for when one rose with a horrible chattering to its feet, his head was still some inches off the low roof. He was dressed in a sort of shirt that came to his knees, but his arms were bare and covered with hair. Then the gesticulation and chattering increased, and I knew that they were talking about me, for they kept pointing in my direction. At that my horror suddenly deepened, for I became aware that I was powerless and could not move hand or foot. A helpless nightmare of impotence had possession of me. I could not lift a finger or turn my head. And in the paralysis of that fear I tried to scream, but not a sound could I utter. All this, I suppose, took place within the instantaneousness of a dream, for at once, without transition, the whole thing had vanished, and I was back on the lawn again while the stroke for which my wife was aiming was still unplayed. But my face was dripping with perspiration, and I was trembling all over. Now, you may all say that I had fallen asleep and had a sudden nightmare. That may be so. But I was conscious of no sense of sleepiness before, and I was conscious of none afterwards. It was as if someone had held a book before me, whisked the pages open for a second, and closed them again. Somebody, I don't know who, got up from his chair with a sudden movement that made me start and turned on the electric light. I do not mind confessing that I was rather glad of this. Edward laughed. Really, I feel like Hamlet in the play scene, he said, and as if there was a guilty uncle present. Shall I go on? I don't think anyone replied, and he went on. Well, let us say for the moment that it was not a dream exactly, but a hallucination. Whichever it was, in any case it haunted me for months. I think it was never quite out of my mind, but lingered somewhere in the dusk of consciousness, sometimes sleeping quietly, so to speak, but sometimes stirring in its sleep. It was no good my telling myself that I was disquieting myself in vain, for it was as if something had actually entered into my very soul, as if some seed of horror had been planted there. And, as the weeks went on and the seed began to sprout, so that I could no longer even tell myself that the vision had been a moment's disortment only, I can't say that it actually affected my health. I did not, as far as I know, sleep or eat insufficiently 
But morning after morning, I used to wake, not gradually and through pleasant dozings into full consciousness, but with absolute suddenness, and find myself plunged into an abyss of despair. Often, too, eating or drinking, I used to pause and wonder if it was worthwhile. Eventually, I told two people about my trouble, hoping that perhaps the mere communication would help matters. Hoping also, but very distantly, that I could not believe at present that digestion or the obscurities of the nervous system were at fault, a doctor, by some simple dose, might convince me of it. In other words, I told my wife, who laughed at me, and my doctor, who laughed also, and assured me that my health was quite unnecessarily robust. At the same time, he suggested that change of air and scene does wonders for the delusion that exists merely in the imagination. He also told me, in answer to a direct question, that he would stake his reputation on the certainty that I was not going mad. Well, we went up to London as usual for the season, and though nothing whatever occurred to remind me in any way of that single moment on Christmas Eve, the reminding was seen to all right. The moment itself took care of that, for instead of fading, as is the way of sleeping or waking dreams, it grew every day more vivid and ate, so to speak, like some corrosive acid into my mind, etching itself there. And to London succeeded Scotland. I took last year for the first time a small forest up in Sutherland called Glen Callan, very remote and wild, but affording excellent stocking. It was not far from the sea, and the gillies used always to warn me to carry a compass on the hill because sea mists were liable to come up with frightful rapidity, and there was always a danger of being caught by one, and of having perhaps to wait hours till it cleared again. This, at first, I always used to do, but, as everyone knows, any precaution that one takes which continues to be unjustified gets gradually relaxed. And at the end of a few weeks, since the weather had been uniformly clear, it was natural that, as often as not, my compass remained at home. One day, the stock took me to a part of my ground that I had seldom been on before, a very high tableland on the limit of my forest, which went down very steeply on one side to a lock that lay below it, and on the other, by gentler generations, to the river that came from the lock, six miles below, which stood the lodge. The wind had necessitated our climbing up, or so my stalker had insisted, not by the easier way, but up the crags from the lock. I'd argue the point with him, for it seemed to me that it was impossible that the deer could get our scent if we went by the more natural path. But he still held to his opinion, and therefore, since after all this was his part of the job, I yielded. A dreadful climb we had of it, over big boulders with deep holes in between, massed by clumps of heather, so that a wary eye and a prodding stick were necessary for each step if one wished to avoid broken bones. Adders also literally swarmed in the heather. We must have seen a dozen at least on our way up, and the adders are a beast for which I had no manner of use. But 
and a couple of hours saw us at the top, only to find that the stalker had been utterly at fault, and the deer must have quite infallibly have got wind of us if they had remained in the place where we last saw them. That, when we could spy the ground again, we saw had happened. In any case, they had gone. The man insisted the wind had changed, a palpably stupid excuse, and I wondered at that moment what other reason he had, for reason I felt sure there must be, for not wishing to take what would clearly have been a better route. But this piece of bad management did not spoil our luck. For within an hour, we had spied more deer, and about two o'clock, I got a shot, killing a heavy stag. Then, sitting on the heather, I ate lunch, and enjoyed a well-earned bask and smoke in the sun. The pony, meantime, had been saddled with the stag and was plodding homewards. The morning had been extraordinarily warm, with a little wind blowing off the sea, which lay a few miles off sparkling beneath a blue haze. And all morning, in spite of our abominable climb, I had an extreme sense of peace. So much so that several times I had probed my mind, so to speak, to find if the horror still lingered there. But I could scarcely get any response from it. Never since Christmas had I been so free of fear, and it was with a great sense of repose, both physical and spiritual, that I lay looking up to the blue sky watching my smoke whirls curl slowly away into nothingness. But I was not allowed to take my ease long, for Sandy came and begged that I would move. The weather had changed, he said. The wind had shifted again, and he wanted me to be off this high ground and on the path again as soon as possible, because it looked to him as if a sea mist would presently come up. And yon's a bad place to get down in the mist, he added, nodding towards the crags we had come up. I looked at the man in amazement, for to our right lay a gentle slope down onto the river, and there was now no possible reason for again tackling those hideous rocks up which we had climbed this morning. More than ever, I was sure he had some secret reason for not wishing to go the obvious way. But about one thing he was certainly right. The mist was coming up from the sea, and I felt in my pocket for the compass, and found I had forgotten to bring it. Then there followed a curious scene which lost us time that we could really ill afford to waste. I, insisting on going down by the way that common sense directed, he, imploring me to take his word for it, that the crags were the better way. Eventually I marched off to the easier descent, and told him not to argue any more, but follow. What annoyed me about him was that he would only give the most senseless reasons for preferring the crags. There were mossy places, he said, on the way I wished to go, a thing patently false, since the summer had been one spell of unbroken weather. Or was it longer, also obviously untrue, or there were so many vipers about? But seeing that none of these arguments produced any effect, at last he desisted and came after me, in silence. We were not yet half down when the mist was upon us, shooting up from the valley like the broken water of a wave, and in three minutes we were enveloped in a cloud of fog so thick that we could barely see a dozen yards in front of us. It was therefore 
another cause for self-congratulation, that we were not now, as we should otherwise have been, precariously clambering on the face of those crags up which we had come with such difficulty in the morning. And as I rather prided myself on my powers of generalship in the matter of direction, I continued leading, feeling sure that before long we should strike the track by the river. More than all, the absolute freedom from fear elated me. Since Christmas, I had not known the instinctive joy of that. I felt like a schoolboy home from the holidays. But the mist grew thicker and thicker, and whether it was that real rain clouds had formed above it, or that it was of an extraordinary density itself, I got wetter in the next hour than I have ever been before or since. The wet seemed to penetrate the skin and chilled the very bones. And still, there was no sign of the track for which I was making. Behind me, muttering to himself, followed the stalker, but his arguments and protestations were dumb, and it seemed as if he kept close to me, as if afraid. Now, there are many unpleasant companions in this world. I would not, for instance, care to be on the hill with a drunkard or a maniac. But worse than either, I think, is a frightened man, because his trouble is infectious, and insensibly I began to be afraid and frightened too. From that, it's but a short step to fear. Other perplexities, too, beset us. At one time we seemed to be walking on flat ground. At another I felt sure we were climbing again, whereas all the time we ought to have been descending, unless we had missed the way very badly indeed. Also, for the month of October, it was beginning to get dark, and it was with a sense of relief that I remembered that the full moon would rise soon after sunset but it had grown very much colder, and soon, instead of rain, we found we were walking through a steady fall of snow. Things were pretty bad, but then, for a moment, they seemed to mend, for far away to the left I suddenly heard the brawling of the river. It should, it's true, have been straight in front of me, and we were perhaps a mile out of our way, but this was better than the blind wandering of the last hour and turning to the left, I walked towards it. But before I had gone a hundred yards, I heard a sudden choked cry behind me, and just saw Sandy's form flying, as if in terror of pursuit, into the mists. I called to him, but I got no reply, and heard only the spurned stones of his running. What had frightened him I had no idea. But, certainly, with his disappearance, the infection of his fear disappeared also and I went on, I must say, with gaiety. On the moment, however, I saw a sudden, well-defined blackness in front of me, and before I knew what I was doing, I was half stumbling, half walking up a very steep slope of grass. During the last few minutes the wind had got up, and the driving snow was particularly uncomfortable, but there had been a certain consolation in thinking that the wind would soon disperse these mists and I had nothing more than a moonlight walk home. But, as I paused on this slope, I became aware of two things. One, that the blackness in front of me was very close. The other that, whatever it was, it sheltered me from the snow. 
so I climbed on a dozen yards into its friendly shelter, for it seemed to me to be friendly. A wall, some twelve feet high, crowned the slope, and exactly where I struck it was a hole in it, or a door, rather, through which a little light appeared. I wondered at this as I pushed on, bending down, for the passage was very low, and in a dozen yards came out on the other side. Just as I did this, the sky suddenly grew lighter, the wind, I suppose, having dispersed the mists, and the moon, though not yet visible through the flying skirts of cloud, made sufficient illumination. I was in a circular enclosure, and above me there projected from the walls, some four feet from the ground, broken stones which must have been intended to support a floor. Then, simultaneously, two things occurred. The whole of my nine months' terror came back to me, for I saw that the vision in the garden was fulfilled, and at the same moment I saw stealing towards me a little figure of a man, but only about three foot six in height. That my eyes told me. My ears told me that he stumbled on a stone. My nostrils told me that the air I breathed was of an overpowering foulness. And my soul told me that it was sick unto death. I think I tried to scream, but I could not. I know I tried to move and could not, and it crept closer. Then I suppose the terror which held me spellbound so spurred me that I must move. For next moment I heard a cry break from my lips, and was stumbling through the passage. I made one leap of it down the grass slope, and I ran as I hoped never to have to run again. What direction I took I did not pause to consider, so long as I put distance between me and that place. Luck, however, favored me, and before long I struck the track by the river, and an hour afterwards reached the lodge. Next day I developed a chill, and as you know, pneumonia laid me on my back for six weeks. Well, that is my story, and there are many explanations. You may say that I fell asleep on the lawn, and was reminded of that by finding myself, under discouraging circumstances, in an old pick's castle, where a sheep or a goat that, like myself, had taken shelter from the storm and was moving about. Yes, there are hundreds of ways in which you may explain it. But the coincidence was an odd one and those who believe in second sight might find an instance of their hobby in it. Is that all? I asked. Yes, it was nearly too much for me. I think the dressing bell has sounded. That was E.F. Benson's Between the Lights, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and our intrepid editor here at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares his life with a husband, dog, and cat. Thank you, Seth. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Our second story comes from Jeff C. Carter. Jeff C. Carter lives in Southern California with a cat, a dog, and a human. His love of science, adventure, and Halloween inspires his science fiction, action, and horror writing. In addition to hosting the Six Demon Bag podcast, Jeff's writing has been featured online and in print for magazines and anthologies, and has been adapted for podcasts. Find more of his work at jeffccarter.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Jeff C. Carter's Sturm und Drang, first published in That Hoodoo Voodoo That You Do, from Angelic Night Press. The peaty smell of the Danube reached Luca before he crossed the Carpathian Mountains. The sunrise raced ahead of him, splashing gold against the walls of Pressburg Castle, before painting the peaked red roofs of the city. The chill air dissipated, and Luca frowned. He preferred the harsh intensity of winter to the airy grace of spring, but at least there were holes in his boots and a hunger in his belly to make him feel alive. He passed by the iron gates of the summer archbishop's palace where Georg Raphael Donner had his sculpting studio. Luca had come to the capital to find a patronage like that. The life of a vagabond was full of truth and passion, but he could transform neither into art without resources. 
He strolled along the cobblestone lanes, admiring the Baroque and Gothic architecture, which was superior to the clean and dainty art of the recent Enlightenment. Luca was gazing at a forlorn gargoyle perched on a cathedral when he collided with a female beggar. She was the first supplicant he had seen all day, and he smiled to greet a fellow pauper. One side of her face was morose, hanging slack from an ugly divot in her forehead. The flaccid muscles drooped, reminding Luca of his paralyzed grandmother. The other half of the woman's face gripped a wide and leering smile. He watched the deep-set grooves of her cheek and waited for the grin to move, but it was too fixed and immobile. Luca's hands flexed, eager to sketch or sculpt the warring extremes of emotion etched upon the woman's face. The dynamic chaos of her features was more compelling than any naked strumpet or bored Venus. If only he had clay. He drank in the details of her face until tears welled up in her eyes, and she buried her face beneath a ragged shawl. She fled down Schanstrasse and turned the corner. Luca called out after her and gave chase. She was gone, vanished into the shadow of the cathedral. He looked up at the frozen sneers of the gargoyles and sighed. The rich scent of pork goulash and warm potato pancakes set his stomach quivering. A rosy-cheeked man stepped out of a restaurant and pulled his fine wool coat about him to ward off the returning chill. He regarded Luca as he buttoned his collar. Sculptor? Luca gasped. How did you know? The man grinned wide, and his eyes crinkled with delight. You have the arms of a farmer, but the build of a bookworm. I too had that figure once upon a time. He thumped his round stomach and laughed, and Luca did too. The old man extended a hand from a ruffled sleeve, and Luca shook it. The hand was calloused and strong. Professor Messerschmitt. Luca bowed. It's good to meet you, sir. I'm Luca von Klinger, your humble servant. He eyed the other man's silk shirt and gold-figured waistcoat. He dressed like a gentleman. Luca wondered if he could introduce him to any nobles or clergymen. The professor scrutinized him in turn, eyes narrow and jaw thrust forward in contemplation. How would you like to serve as an apprentice? Luca pretended to consider the idea he was seeking patronage, not instruction. Not to me, of course, but rather for my brother. Luca startled. Do you mean, is your brother Franz Xaver Messerschmidt? The professor cocked an eyebrow. You know of him. He's a genius. His sculptures are more primal and human than anything the lifeless neoclassical movement could ever produce. The professor smirked. He would be the first to agree. He lives outside of town. He does not have much, but I would pay you a handsome salary to look after him. Luca nodded. What kind of apprenticeship was he talking about? My only condition is that you must not tell him that I sent you. You cannot mention me at all. Why not? The professor's forehead bunched into a knot, and the corners of his eyes and lips drooped. We have had a falling out. In truth, my brother is losing his grip on his reason. I have been aware of this growing confusion for years. I did everything in my power to protect his reputation, but when he applied for a post at my... I informed his appointment it would be a detriment to the institution. Franz found out and swore never to forgive me. It is my fondest hope that an apprentice might rekindle his desire to teach and sharpen his faculties. Who knows? You may even lead him back to the academy.
Luca weighed the situation. This was better than a patronage. He could earn money at the feet of a true master. Who cared if the old man was irrational? His passion and intensity was surely part of his genius. They settled the details over coppery sweet Hungarian wine and breaded pork schnitzel. He bade the professor farewell and left the capital, following the shadow of Pressburg Castle as it stretched before him like a dark road. The Messerschmitt estate was an old brick house nestled in the arms of the Carpathians and perched above the Danube. The sounds of a heated exchange echoed inside, and Luca wondered if the professor had changed his mind and somehow arrived before him. His fist hovered in front of the door, unsure if he should knock, or if the knock would even be heard above the din. The door flew open to reveal Franz Xaver Messerschmidt. He resembled the professor, yet lacked his brother's lively expression. Only his dark eyes moved, squirming restlessly in his pale, blank face. The eyes crawled along every crease and contour of Luca's head, probing with the invasive manner of a blind man's fingers. Luca tried to keep his face similarly neutral, lest it betray his discomfort and ruin the opportunity before it began. Messerschmidt clutched his shoulders and rose up on his toes to get a closer look. His head bobbed and circled to inspect Luca from every angle. Luca grit his teeth to keep his face composed. Messerschmidt dug his fingers deeper into his shoulders and pressed his face nose to nose with him. His rank breath blew into Luca's face. Luca's poise slipped and his head jerked to the side, eyes clamped shut and nose wrinkled in a spasm of revulsion. The old sculptor released him. He'll do. He shuffled inside, leaving the door ajar. Luca used his forearm to wipe away the film of sour breath and nervous sweat. He followed Messerschmidt into the anteroom and froze. The studio beyond was a crowded amphitheater. Hordes of faces screamed silently from every inch of the studio. There were pale reliefs in plaster, gray stone busts and shining casts of bronze. Every emotion was displayed a dozen times over, each in its most extreme incarnation. Foreheads, eyebrows, and mouths bloomed in ecstatic joy, crumpled in abject grief, and imploded in volcanic fury. Have you studied the human face? Do you truly understand it? Luca nodded, overwhelmed by the crush of bizarre and evocative masterpieces. The face is not a mask of flesh pulled taut by ropes of muscle. You cannot capture real emotion in stone. I tried to bring my sculptures to life. I tried. A queer pattern of geometry emerged from the yowling, grinning, sobbing, growling faces. They were arranged in a series on a variety of platforms. Dozens of heads were mounted on gears that rotated on a spinning wheel. One set of faces was in a hive of angled mirrors. There was even a cluster of chimeras, with faces fused and gopping from every side of their heads. Have you studied anatomy, boy? Luca started to answer when Messerschmitt cut him off. Then you have learned that even if you peel the tissue from the skull and put it back in your own arrangement, you will not capture the essence of expression. Messerschmidt dug his fingers into his own face and pulled his flesh into several grotesque caricatures. You must subdue the spiritus vitalis, the very essence of movement 
in the living body. How many expressions do you reckon there are? Luca jumped at the question. Surely they must be infinite. No. There are 64 canonical grimaces. These are the keys to the Spiritus Fatalis. Once you master these, you may control the body. You may even appease forces beyond the body. Messerschmitt trailed off and put his fingers to his mouth like a frightened child. Luca shifted uncomfortably before prompting him from his stupor. Your muse must be insatiable. The old sculptor chewed on a fingernail. My muse. He's a demon. His eyes jerked up as if seeing Luca for the first time. Fetch me wax from the store in town and fresh clay from the riverbank. Order stone from the quarry. We must be ready to work at an instant's notice. Our hammer and chisel cannot waver. Luca swallowed. Master, the sun has set. I cannot do those things until morning. Messerschmitt looked out the window and scratched his chin. I had not noticed. Light the lamps. Clean the studio. When you have finished, assemble an armature for a heavy statue. Make it as strong as possible. He tucked an illustrated book under his arm and scurried away. Luca shook his head. Standing before true genius was like stumbling into a storm. There was much to learn. He lit the oil lamp scattered about the house. He found a larder with sheep's milk, cheese, and sausage, and after a hasty meal, located the broom. He swept plaster dust and chunks of marble across the studio floor. He felt exposed as he worked, and avoided the staring faces as he made his laps with the broom. The lamp light pulsed across the crowd, making mouths stretch and eyes bulge. He wondered if this was how the doomed slaves of the Colosseum felt, trapped and awaiting the arrival of the gladiator. Building the armature provided a pleasant distraction. He found plenty of strong steel beams and bolts to support a large block of stone. He searched for a wrench among the hammers and chisels. There was certainly a wealth of saws, drills, and knives. Luca had yet to see any wood carvings in the studio, but the master was doubtless skilled in every medium. In short order, he assembled the beams with the proper dimensions to lock a heavy stone head and shoulders into place. A shriek, like a boiling kettle, reverberated through the chalky dust in the air. Luca grabbed a hammer and ran toward the sound, following the trail of grunts and gasps through the unfamiliar house. He arrived at a black oak door. The massive slab of wood sealed the doorway and muffled the sounds within. Luca shuddered to think how loud the screams must be on the other side. He pounded on the door. Master Messerschmitt! The awful cacophony continued. Luca shouted again and struck the door with a hammer, but it was no use. He pressed his face to the ground and peered through the gap beneath the door. He saw feet pacing back and forth. There were discernible words now in German, Greek, and a wholly unknown language. He could not make out the meanings, but the rhythm of chanting was unmistakable. Messerschmitt repeated the stretches of Greek in the same way each time, as if reading from a book, breaking only to interject a pained squeal or plea for mercy in sobbing German. Luca pulled his ear away from the gap and pushed his eye as close as his cramped ear and nose allowed. He caught a glimpse of ivory faces. The chamber beyond was ringed in busts crafted with a mastery Luca had never beheld in his life. The luminous marble had the texture of human flesh and hair. 
Each distorted expression was a beacon of emotion, projecting a precise mental state through the stone like a pitch from a tuning fork. Tears welled up in his eyes. Whatever madness gripped Messerschmitt, it was worth it. This was the pinnacle of transcendent art. Messerschmitt's wails ran dry, and he collapsed to the ground. Lucas slapped his palm against the door and directed his voice through the crack. The sculptor did not respond, but his face was placid and his chest rose and fell in a peaceful cadence. Luca did not sleep nearly so well. He found a soft bed, but every time he closed his eyes, the masterpieces of the hidden room burned within his mind. He fantasized about the power to imprint fleeting human nature onto immortal stone. Was it possible to learn such techniques? Would Messerschmitt pass on his secrets? He left for the capital at dawn. As he walked in the shade of the chestnut trees, the more plebeian and rational parts of his mind woke to nag him. Was it worth his sanity to make great art? Had he seen what was there? Or had his unnerved mind concocted a fantasy in a sideways glimpse through a sliver of door? Could Franz Xaver Messerschmitt teach him anything? Or was he just a madman obsessing over the same motifs? He found the markets downtown and ordered fresh stone from the quarry. He bought wax, linen, and plaster, as well as sun-dried domestic supplies. He searched the streets for the professor, hoping for some amicable diversion before he had to return to the studio. He would likely tell the professor that he could not accept the apprenticeship. A familiar figure crossed his path in front of Grosikovich Palace. Luca recognized the tattered shawl wrapped around the woman's face, hiding its conflicting halves. He stepped softly careful not to send her fleeing again. She stopped to rest on the edge of a marble fountain. The cloth fell away from her face as she counted the coins in her dirty hands. A statue of Venus glared down at her. The contrast of the beggar's broken face and the imperious sculpture was almost too much for Luca to bear. Art should not belong to perfect saints and beautiful demigods. It should represent the ugly and unreasonable people who created it. That was his duty and calling. He turned on his heel and headed back to the studio. When he returned, Messerschmitt was inspecting the armature. Satisfied, he pushed a steamed dumpling into his mouth and then offered one to Luca. Luca clutched the warm bread and waited for Messerschmitt to say something. In the bright morning light, the old sculptor looked like any other teacher, down to the drops of plum jam on his shirt. Luca cleared his throat. I have the supplies you requested. Messerschmitt smiled. The clay and stone? Luca clenched his fists. Forgive me, the stone has not yet arrived. The day is young. I will be sketching in the garden. Master, I was wondering if you could teach me about the faces? The canonical grimaces? Messerschmitt looked him up and down. Give me something I can work with, and I shall teach you. He left the studio, and Luca punched his palm in excitement. He noticed the stack of reference books that had been too dense to read by lamplight. There was De Humani Corpus Fabrica, The Indispensable Book of Anatomy by Vesalius, Da Vinci's Exhaustive Studies for the Libyan Sibyl, and a rare edition of Two Flayed Men and Skeletons, a compendium of illustrations showing bodies with their skin and muscles carefully peeled away. Luca found a weathered book at the bottom of the stack he did not recognize. It was entitled Tabulus Maragdina, 
and it radiated secret knowledge. Luca could not decipher its ancient Greek text, but he flipped through the jaundice pages anyway. The book was filled with Egyptian hieroglyphs and detailed illustrations of ghoulish mummies. Perhaps this was an early reference on anatomy. Handwritten notes filled the margins with German. These made no grammatical sense, yet they were reminiscent of the phrases Messerschmitt had bellowed the night before. He placed the tome back in the pile, eager to preserve the peace of the day. The back of the estate abutted a precipice over the muddy Danube. He placed his feet carefully as he navigated the steep path to the riverbank. If he did not return with the clay before the shadow of the Carpathians swooped in, one false step would be his last. He returned with a bucket in each trembling arm. The fresh-cut stone blocks were waiting at the front of the house. He put his aching body to the task of hauling the marble slabs into the studio. Lucas smiled at the collection of faces. They were becoming old friends, each with their unique personality written across their features. He anticipated crafting his own characters with the techniques Messerschmitt would soon impart. He gathered the ropes from the stone blocks and dumped them out back. He nearly tripped over a sculpture toppled in the tall grass. Half a face exposed to the dying light glowed with a smile of delight. He cleared the grass away. The bottom half was black with dirt and shadow. He dimly recognized the face, but he could not summon a name. The sun withdrew behind the cloak of the Carpathians. Luca knew that if he did not place the mysterious face, it would haunt him until morning. He returned with an oil lamp and scrubbed away the soil. It was blank, but not unmade, a fully sculpted face without expression. He lay down in the grass to look in its eyes. As the Carpathian and Danube tilted around him, he recognized the face. It belonged to the beggar woman in town. An agonized sound roared from the house. Messerschmitt. Luca rushed back to the black oak door. Franz Zaver Messerschmitt emerged, silhouetted against the glowing white sculptures of the hidden room. They stared out like the chorus of a Greek tragedy. Luca stared back, awed by their terrible beauty. Messerschmitt had transcended mastery. The pale busts radiated a wild vitality. I must finish the masterpiece tonight. We will create the 64th canonical grimace. He dragged Luca by the hand into the studio. Sit. Luca sat next to the armature as indicated. Messerschmitt fastened the steel bars around his wrists, neck, and head. Luca realized then that he would be the model for this sculpture. He was flattered and excited, though he commonly used the water closet before posing for a sculpture. It was going to be a long night. Master, what exactly is a canonical grimace? Messerschmitt ignored him and spun the clamps in tight until Luca could not move a muscle. The Danube gurgled restlessly. Darkness pooled at the windows and flooded the corners of the studio. There are forty-two muscles in the face. You wrinkle your nose for disgust, but also anger. You widen your eyes for fear, but also surprise. We can make many faces true. But how many are purely unique? He stepped away to light the oil lamps. Luca's eyes followed the dance of shadow across the crowd of sculptures. The sense of grim anticipation had returned to their leering, distorted faces. The old sculptor set a mirror in front of Luca so that he could see his own face. 
are you saying that the 64 expressions, they convey the truth of human nature? Human nature? The grimaces have nothing to do with human beings. They are the keys detailed in the hermetic writings. The keys I need to appease the demon that torments me. Luca swallowed, and the blunt end of the armature dug into his throat. If that were true, you must have appeased it by now. You have carved these sculptures a hundred times over. Messersmith swooped down and glared into his eyes. Out of dirty clay, inanimate stone, I tried for years. Utter failure. Flesh is the only medium that will satisfy the demon. I studied the secrets of the alchemists and necromancers. But no one can bring stone to life. I thought all was lost until I discovered how to transform living flesh into sculpture. He snatched up a chisel and hammer. He placed them near the opening of Luca's right ear. There is a nerve on the right side of the skull, just behind the temporal bones. A precise strike with a chisel can sever this nerve and preserve any expression you have formed upon your face. There were so many failed experiments. So many faces frozen halfway, or not at all. Still, I persevered until I captured them all. There is but one canonical grimace remaining. The sublime blend of horror and enlightenment. I promise you, it will live on your face forever. Luca's weary body surged with the strength born of terror. He thrashed against his bonds until his skin scraped and tore, but his bones were locked down tight. He stared in the mirror and narrowed his eyes. He clenched his jaw until his teeth ached. Anything to deny his fear and keep his face blank. Messerschmitt caressed the delicate bump of skin by Luca's ear with the cold tip of the chisel. You cannot shape your face better than I. Let go. Show me the horror. Accept the truth of the situation and gain the knowledge you came for. Luca's blurry, tear-filled eyes began to bulge in panic. He squeezed them shut. The rictus in his neck twisted his face against his will. He slammed his jawbone forward against the clamps. He would not give Messerschmitt his prize. Your brother was right. You're a lunatic. The edge of the chisel softened against his ear. My brother, what are you talking about? Luca opened his eyes. Your brother, the professor, he paid me to be your apprentice. He thought you could be saved, but you're a maniac. Messerschmitt shook his head. Nonsense. I have no brother. Luca's eyes widened as he stared past Messerschmitt. The professor had emerged from the shadows to take his place among the silent crowd. His once jovial face was a chaotic blur, flickering through hundreds of violent expressions. Luca recoiled as the awful truth dawned upon him. Messerschmitt swung the hammer.
That was Jeff C. Carter's Sturm und Drang, as read by Drew Mallory. Drew is a research psychologist and interventionist who works on issues that affect vulnerable populations. When not narrating or voice acting, he authors his own dark fiction. Drew currently lives in Belgium, where he works on sustainability issues and, like every good psychologist, is accompanied by his pet rats. Thank you, Drew. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. We've got a new piece of bonus content in the works that's sure to give you an extra chill this time of year. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up, or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage, tales to terrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to your favorite podcatcher and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They keep us on the charts and help us to seep into the ears of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we chill you to the core with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 